You're listening to the SSPX Podcast. This is the first part of a five-part parish mission series that was first delivered by Father Stephen McDonald in 2016 back at St. Isidore's Priory in Denver, Colorado. This first episode is on the redemption and the part that the faithful play in their own redemption along with our Lord Jesus Christ. If you would like more information and more resources, audio resources, we are providing more of those uh, as we move through uh, this Holy Week and this Passion Week of 2020. Please visit sspxpodcast.com for uh, more resources, more audio and video resources. Sources. We're also live streaming Mass daily, so please visit sspx.org and you can find the links there. But for now, here's the first part of the parish mission from Father Stephen McDonald in 2016 from Denver, Colorado. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. So certainly, firstly, I want to thank Father McDonald for allowing me to come here and pre- preach your parish mission to spend Holy Week with you. Of course, Holy Week is all about redemption, redemption from sin. It is all about the greatest victory that has ever been won, the victory of our Lord on the cross, a victory over the devil, over death, and over sin. Holy Holy Week, though, is also about conversion, sharing in this victory, sharing in our own redemption from sin. Of course, one of the greatest conversion stories of all time is that of St. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, who began life as Saul, the persecutor of the church, a man who consented to the death of St. Stephen, the first martyr, a man who went about trying to destroy Christianity and to seek the lives of the followers of Christ, until one fateful day he has literally knocked off his horse And in an instant, this persecutor of the church is converted, and he becomes St. Paul. And yet St. Paul, of course, did not immediately go about his mission. He began a life of study, a life of prayer, being directed by the apostles for the great mission that God chose him for. We can certainly learn much about conversion from this apostle St. Paul. We read in the Acts of the Apostles the account of his conversion. But Saul, still breathing threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any men or women belonging to this way, he might bring them in bonds to Jerusalem. And as he went on his journey, it came to pass that he drew near to Damascus, when suddenly a light from heaven shone round about him, and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou art persecuting. It is hard for thee to kick against the goad. And he, trembling and amazed, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it will be told thee what thou must do. Now the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing indeed the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, but when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he could not see, and neither could he eat nor drink." As I said, we can learn much from the story of the conversion of St. Paul. It is hard for you to kick against the goad. Our Lord could say that to each one of us. 
He who has given us so many graces, he who has given us so many blessings, he who has called us to a life of grace and holiness, and yet we resist him one turn after another. And our Lord could say to us, it is hard for you to kick against the goad. Why do you resist this ultimate conversion? Why do you resist a life of sanctity, a life of holiness, which I offer to you? And so we are going to spend these days of recollection, this parish mission, with St. Paul. Each night we will consider a different doctrine of St. Paul, a different teaching of St. Paul. We will consider a various character, a different character on Calvary that we meet that illustrates this doctrine. And then finally, we will consider the beautiful liturgy of the sacred triduum, the three most holy days of the year, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. And we will progressively look at Christ's victory over sin the first night, moving on to our own conversion to Christ, our own conversion to a life of grace the second night, and then finally we will consider the final victory in the resurrection. And so this evening, my dear friends, we are going to consider one of St. Paul's great and most famous teachings, that of Christ as the new Adam. For St. Paul, it's very clear. Everything must revolve around Christ. Everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we hope to achieve must be for Christ, in Christ, and with Christ. For St. Paul, it's so simple. It's so very easy. For to me, to live is Christ. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That is literally the goal for each one of us, or it should be the goal for each one of us. That we could say that it is no longer I who acts, but it is Christ who acts in me. Christ lives in me. I no longer choose what I want, but I am all about what Christ wants. I no longer want what I want, but I want what Christ wants. St. Paul sees Christ as the new Adam who has redeemed us from sin who has redeemed the old Adam from his original sin, who has redeemed each one of the descendants of Adam from their own personal sins. But of course, that has to presuppose sin and its consequences. And so right off the bat in this parish mission, we of course have to admit to ourselves that we are sinners and that our sins have consequences. Our sins have harmed others. Our sins have harmed ourselves. And our sins deserve hellfire if it were not for the beautiful mercy and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the love of his sacred heart. We must never forget that through sin, of course, death entered the world, suffering entered the world. Through sin, because of sin, the gates of heaven were closed. Through this original sin, we all have an inclination to sin. We are prone to sin. We have an attraction to sin. And no matter how holy we may become, that inclination is always there. And therefore, we must always fight against it. We must always strive to overcome it. And therefore, we must constantly reflect that we are sinners in need of conversion, in need of redemption, in need of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ is the new Adam. And St. Paul makes a beautiful parallel between the old Adam, the old Adam of sin, and the new Adam, the Adam of grace. I quote the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15. What is sown a natural body rises a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that comes first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, earthy. The second man from heaven, heavenly. As was the earthy man, such also are the earthy. And as is the heavenly man, such also are the heavenly. Therefore, even as we have borne the likeness of the earthly, let us bear also the likeness of the heavenly. He goes on to say, For since by a man came death, by a man also comes resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made to live. It's an impressive contrast, and we might ask ourselves as we begin this parish mission, where do we stand? The first Adam was earthly. He cared about the things of this world. All he could think about were earthly matters. The second Adam, Christ, was heavenly. He directed our gaze to heaven, to spiritual things, to the things of God. The first Adam was material. He was concerned with material things, people and places and things, possessions. Whereas the second Adam is spiritual. He lifts our gaze to more important things, to everlasting things, things that we will take with us to heaven. The first Adam brought death and suffering. The new Adam brings life, brings hope. And finally, the old Adam brings sin, is mired in sin, whereas the new Adam brings grace, brings a Christ-like existence. We might ask ourselves, where do we stand? Hopefully, please God, we stand on the side of the new Adam. And yet, are we fully divested from the things of the old Adam? Have we learned to die to self? Have we learned to use this earth and these material goods in order to gain heaven? Or are we too concerned with those things that get in the way of our heavenly destiny? We must ask ourselves, where do we stand? The second Adam, Christ himself, came to atone for sin. He came to conquer death, and he does so by dying for us. This is something that is absolutely key for us to understand in the spiritual life. Our Lord redeemed us from sin by dying, by the cross, by suffering. And the only way that we are ever going to, in a sense, come to that redemption is if we learn to die to self, if we learn to carry our cross, if we learn to suffer well for the love of God. That's absolutely the key to the spiritual life. The cross, a death which brings life. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ is the only person to ever have been born in order to die. Most of us are born, and we live a certain amount of time. Some of us 20 years, some of us 50 years, some of us 100 years. 
but we're given a certain amount of time, and we might accomplish a certain amount of our goals. And please God, we wind up saving our soul. But we are born in order to live, and death is simply a consequence of sin. It ends, it terminates our life here on earth. But our Lord Jesus Christ was born in order to die. Death was always before him. The cross was always before him. Fulton Sheen says it quite beautifully in his life of Christ, that our Lord never, ever was without the thought of his death, because he was never without the thought of our redemption. Every other person who has ever come into this world came into it to live. Christ came into it to die. Death was a stumbling block to Socrates. It interrupted his teaching. But to Christ, death was the goal and the fulfillment of his life, the goal that he was seeking. Few of his words or actions are intelligible without reference to his cross. He presented himself as a savior rather than merely as a teacher. It meant nothing to teach men to be good unless also he gave them the power to be good after rescuing them from the frustration of guilt. The story of every human life begins with birth and ends with death. In the person of Christ, however, it was his death that was first and his life that was last. The scripture describes him as the lamb slain, as it were, from the beginning of the world. He was slain in intention by the first sin and rebellion against God. It was not so much that his birth cast a shadow on his life and thus led to his death. It was rather that the cross was first and cast its shadow back to his birth. His has been the only life in the world that was ever lived backward. As the flower in the crannied wall tells the poet of nature, and as the atom in the, is the miniature of the solar system, so too his birth tells the mystery of the gibbet. He went from the known to the known, from the reason of his coming manifested by his name Jesus, or Savior, to the fulfillment of his coming, namely his death on the cross. Our Lord came in order to die. He came in order to die for our sins so that the new Adam could redeem the old Adam. Our Lord died for us. That is something we can never remind ourselves often enough. And as we gaze upon the crucifix, certainly during this holy week, this week of weeks, but as we spend the rest of our lives and we meditate upon the cross and we look upon the cross, we must never forget that this is why our Lord was born, to die on the cross, to die for my sins, to redeem me from my sins, and to call me to a new life, a life of grace, so that whatever I was before my conversion, I have left that behind. And I have embraced a life of holiness, a life of grace, and yes, a life of suffering. The follower of Christ, a Christian, has to be with his or her cross. He cannot shirk that cross. He must love that cross. He must embrace that cross, and he must see in that cross the means to die to die to self and to die to one's own selfish wishes so that we might truly live to Christ and live for Christ. Our Lord redeemed the old Adam by dying on his cross. 
It's quite beautiful to reflect the name Calvary, of course, means the place of the skull. There's an ancient tradition that says our Lord was crucified on the very spot in which Adam was buried. It's symbolic of the new Adam redeeming the old Adam from sin. It is why you often see depictions of the crucifixion and there is a skull at the base of the cross. Our Lord literally overcame the sin of the old Adam by planting his cross in the very grave in which the old Adam was buried. Our Lord came to suffer and die. He takes on sin for our redemption. It is a direct confrontation with the devil. And for us to be redeemed, for us to share in this victory, we must learn to take on the devil as well in a direct confrontation, overcoming our sins, resisting temptation. And of course, our Lord gives us the perfect example of this. His death on the cross was not the first time that he directly confronted the devil. He allowed himself to be tempted at the very beginning of his public life in the temptations of Christ. We read it in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Not by bread alone does man live but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou art the Son of God, throw thyself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning thee, and upon their their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written further, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Of course, our Lord cannot sin. At this point, because it's at the very beginning of our Lord's public ministry, the devil does not yet know that Christ is the Son of God. He knows Jesus of Nazareth to be a very holy man, a man with a very special mission. And so he seeks to tempt him away from this mission, to tempt him away from our redemption. It's quite interesting, the three categories of man's temptations are manifested in each one of the temptations of Christ. Firstly, our Lord is tempted to change stones into bread. This represents, of course, those temptations which pertain to the flesh, lust, gluttony, the sensual sins, the sins that the devil constantly tries to trip us up with, the sins, the temptations that the great majority of men fall into. They're so easy for the devil to make men commit. But when he is thwarted, he moves on to the second series of temptations. Temptations that pertain to the mind, pride, envy. Cast yourself down. Make a scene. Show off for the people. 
How often, once we've overcome the sins of sensuality, we are puffed up, we feel ourselves better than the rest of men. We think ourselves something special. We're not like the rest of men. We're better than they are. And we begin to feel the stings of pride. Or perhaps we resent that others seem to be better than us. And so we burn with envy toward others. Finally, once the devil is thwarted a second time, he takes our Lord up to the pinnacle of the temple, or to the high mountains, and he shows in the holy city, all this will I give you if you just adore me. I will give you everything. It is an idolatrous greed that he tempts our Lord with, and it's also a greed that we are tempted with. But what's important for us to understand that all three temptations are temptations to woo our Lord away from the cross. The devil wants to take Jesus of Nazareth away from his mission. And of course, our Lord's mission is to die on the cross. And so we can make the application in our own spiritual lives. When we are tempted by the devil, he is tempting us away from our duty of state. He is tempting us away from the cross. He does not want us to find redemption. And so he entices us to take the easy way out. He entices us to give in to our pleasures. He entices us to be puffed up with our own greatness. And he tempts us to forget that everything we have, we have from our Lord. Everything that we are given, we are given by Christ. The first temptation, of course, is a temptation to gluttony, to sensuality. Give in to whatever you want. Turn away from God and turn toward a creature. We might at first glance be surprised by this, that our Lord would be tempted by gluttony. After all, he's been fasting for 40 days and nights. But the temptation is not to give in to just any form of gluttony, to eat too much or to eat too refined a food. The temptation is to break your fast before you are ready, to give in to what you feel, to give in to what you want. And you see the subtlety of the devil. He doesn't tempt our Lord with a, with a magnificent feast. He tempts him with ordinary bread. But the devil wants to tempt our Lord away from his mission. And our Lord beautifully answers him with sacred scripture. It is not by bread alone. We are not made for our bellies. We are not made for our passions. We are not made for our flesh. We must be masters and we must learn to control and to curb our passions and our sensual nature. And we do this by fasting, by subjecting our will to the will of God, by expiating our sins. It's why St. Ambrose once said, hunger is the friend of chastity, the enemy of impurity. Fulton Sheen once again beautifully points out that the devil is tempting our Lord to be a social reformer not a savior. Don't save men by dying on the cross. Save men by just giving them what they want. Feed them, make them happy, give them all sorts of pleasures. That's what men want. But it will not help men save their soul. The second temptation, of course, is a temptation to pride, to presumption. A vain display of magnificence. And again, we see the subtlety of the devil. It's as if he says to our Lord, I understand now, I get it. You're a holy man. 
you're an austere man. You will not break your fast before it's time. That was my mistake. You're all about your mission. You're all about souls. Well, I have a, a shortcut for you. I have a way in which you can save even a greater number of souls. Why don't you cast yourself down from the temple? And before you hit the ground, in a magnificent display of God's power, the angels will catch you. Because doesn't sacred scripture say, and again, you see the subtlety of the devil, you quote scripture, I quote scripture too. Doesn't the scripture say that the angels will catch you lest you dash your foot against the stones? Can you imagine how many souls will be drawn to you because they see this magnificent display of your power, of your excellence? You can save so many more souls just by promoting yourself. It is, of course, a temptation to pride, to egotism. After all, people want the spectacular. People want to be entertained. Stimulate the people, but do not try to convert them. Do not try to change them. Entertain them by all means, but don't you dare it prick their consciences. Don't you dare hint at the fact that they are sinners in need of conversion. And our Lord answers beautifully, simply telling the devil, we are not to tempt the Lord thy God. We must have confidence in God and not in self. We must trust in God and not in self. It is by sacrifice that Christ will win souls, not by marvelous, stupendous miracles. Our Lord will work his fair share of miracles. Our Lord will work astounding miracles. But it is by the cross that he will draw souls to him. It is by a life of sacrifice that he will win souls. Finally, the third temptation is a temptation to ambition, to selfishness. All of this I will give you, because I can give this to you. I am the prince of this world. And all you have to do to gain the entire world, everything you've ever wanted, anything you could ever dream of, all you have to do is quietly kneel down and adore me for just one moment. No one else has to see. No one else has to know about it. All I ask is that you compromise your conscience just this one time, and you will gain everything you could possibly dream of. And our Lord beautifully and strongly answers him, Be gone, Satan. You shall not worship anyone but the Lord thy God. And immediately the devil flees, and angels come to minister to our Lord. It is a temptation to make, to make treaty with the world, to get the whole world but without the cross, to seek to save our souls without the cross, without suffering, without carrying the burdens of our day, to seek a shortcut, to seek the easy way out. And how many times we have been tempted by this, how many times we fall into this subtle temptation to want our pie and to eat it too, to want heaven and also want an easy life, a life without the cross. To love the cross from afar, to adore the cross on Good Friday, 
and yet complain when the cross presents itself in our daily life. How often we are guilty of this temptation. St. Thomas Aquinas says there are four reasons why our Lord allows himself to be tempted. The first is to strengthen us against our own temptations, to understand that with every temptation that comes our way, God will give us a very special grace to overcome it. That all we need do is to rely on that grace and we will overcome every and any temptation. Secondly, our Lord allows himself to be tempted to warn us that no degree of holiness ensures anyone against temptation. In fact, the holier we are, the more we will expect to be tempted. The devil wants the beautiful souls to fall. He seeks to tempt souls to fall from a life of grace. And so we must never be overconfident. We must always realize that any of us could be tempted and any of us will be tempted. Thirdly, St. Thomas says our Lord allows himself to be tempted in order to give an example of the means to overcome temptation. When we are tempted, we use the same means that our Lord used in resisting temptation. Prayer, fasting, trust in our Lord, renouncement of self, almsgiving, acts of charity. These are the ways in which we overcome temptation. And then finally, our Lord allows himself to be tempted in order to strengthen our confidence in his mercy. What a consolation for us to know. In the midst of all of our temptations, even in the midst of our falls, our Lord knows what it's like to be tempted. He understands our weakness. And even if we momentarily fall, he loves us in that weakness. And he will call us back to a life of grace, to a life of holiness. He will offer his forgiveness to us. And thus, no temptation is so great that it should shake our confidence in our Lord's loving mercy and our Lord's desire to forgive us. God draws good out of any temptation. When we are tempted, we are humbled. We recognize that we are sinful creatures. When we are tempted, our worth is proven, much like Job in the Old Testament. Our virtues are strengthened when we are tempted. Our virtues are proved when they are under the crucible of temptation. When we are tempted, our merit is increased. Think about that. Every time that we resist temptation, we gain merit for heaven. We have a higher place in heaven because we have overcome temptation. We must not worry if God allows us to be tempted. He is simply preparing a greater place for us in heaven. When we are tempted, it teaches us to have a quicker recourse to God. As God says in sacred scripture, turn to me and I will turn to you. And finally, when we are tempted, we will redouble our vigilance. We will be more vigilant in avoiding the occasions of sin. And thus our Lord gives us a beautiful example, the way to overcome sin, the way in, to share in the redemption of mankind, the way to share in our Lord's victory over sin, the victory over the old Adam, is through a life of sacrifice, is through a life of the cross, is through a life of suffering. We often say that true love is sacrificial. You can prove how much you love someone 
or something, by your willingness to sacrifice for it, to give your life for it. The greatest love of all, of course, is the laying down one's life for one's friends, as our Lord himself tells us. Christ has died for us, and he offers us the chance to die for him. As I said, that is the very key as we set out in the spiritual life, as we grow in the spiritual life, or even please God as we perfect ourselves in the spiritual life. The key is death to self. Have we truly died? Have we truly given up ourselves so that Christ might live within us? Our Lord died for us, and now he's offering us the chance to die for him. Will we accept that magnanimous offer? There are two characters on Calvary who beautifully illustrate the response to this offer. Both of them offered forgiveness. Both of them offered a chance at redemption. Both of them offered a new beginning, a new life. And yet, the response to this offer was quite different. Of course, I speak of the two thieves, the good thief and the bad thief. We read in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 23, And when they came to the place called the Place of Skulls, they crucified him there, and the robbers, one on his right hand and on the other, and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now in dividing his garments, they cast lots. And the people stood looking on, and the rulers with them kept sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him common wine, and saying, If thou art the king of the Jews, save thyself. And there was also an inscription written over him in Greek, in Latin, and Hebrew letters, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of those robbers who were hanged was abusing him, saying, If thou art the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, in answer, rebuked him and said, Dost thou not, dost not thou even fear God, seeing that thou art under the same sentence? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what our deeds deserved. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou come into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise." Two men, guilty of the same crime, they are thieves, in such a serious manner that they were judged worthy of death. In fact, the worst form of death, crucifixion. And both of them are hanging on their cross right next to our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them see our Lord's beauty, his peace, his dignity, they hear our Lord praying for his enemies. They see the magnanimity of our Lord's soul. Both of them witness this, and yet how very differently they respond to our Lord's beautiful offering, his beautiful invitation to come to him. The bad thief, of course, rejects our Lord. He complains, he rails, he blasphemes, he curses. The good thief, who tradition tells us is named Dismas, 
turns to our Lord. He repents of his sins. He shows sorrow for his sins. And what's more, he trusts in the mercy of our Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your paradise, into your kingdom. Stop and consider, meditate for a moment, the incredible faith of this man. He is dying for his sins. He is a reprobate, and he knows that he has one foot in hell already. And yet he trusts in the power and in the forgiveness of this man who, like him, is hanging on a cross, accounted as a thief, as a blasphemer. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And our Lord immediately turns to him and says, Amen, I say to you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Our Lord gives him a complete and absolute forgiveness of his sin, what you might call a plenary indulgence. You will be with me in paradise, sinner though you may be. What a beautiful reaction. Of course, we can react in one of these two ways to our crosses to our sufferings, to our ordeals. Like the bad thief, we could reject our cross. We could complain about our cross. We could rail against our cross. Forgetting, of course, that if we've ever committed one mortal sin in our life, we have deserved to go to hell. Why don't we think more of that? One mortal sin deserves hell. If I've ever committed one mortal sin in my life, I deserve to be in hell right now. The beautiful fact that I'm not is an attestment of the mercy of our Lord, the the forgiveness of our Lord. Why am I not willing to suffer anything in thanksgiving for what our Lord has done for me? Why am I not willing to carry any cross, no matter what it is? Because it's light in comparison to eternal fire. How could I not accept the cross when our Lord has done so much for me? Like the good thief, we should be willing to accept our crosses, to sorrow for our sins, to trust in God's mercy, and to sacrifice ourselves, to die to ourselves so that we might live to Christ. True love is sacrificial. Redemptive love, then, must be sacrificial. If we are going to come to the redemption of our sins, if we are going to share in the victory of the new Adam over the old, then we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves. We must be willing to embrace our crosses. We must be willing to suffer and, yes, even die for the love of Christ. That's how we will share in this redemption of the new Adam. With a sacrificial love, a true love. We see this, of course, beautifully manifested in the liturgy of Maundy Thursday, which commemorates the Last Supper of our Lord. Our Lord longed for this moment his entire life. With desire have I desired to eat this Pasch with you. Our Lord delighted to be with his apostles, to sacrifice his life for his friends. And it is during this Last Supper that he celebrates the Passover for the last time with his apostles. It is during this Last Supper that he institutes the priesthood, the means by which his mission will be continued, his mission of mercy, his mission of forgiveness, his mission of love for the rest of the time of this world. 
It is during the Last Supper that he institutes the Holy Eucharist, giving us his precious body and blood, remaining on our altars, remaining in our souls. It is also during this Last Supper that he gives his great last discourse, his last will and testament to his apostles. And of course, he speaks of many things, but one of the beautiful things he states is that it is a beautiful thing to lay down one's life for one's friends. And our Lord has called us friends. I quote to you from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love than this no man has, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do the things I command you. No longer do I call you servants, because the servant does not know what his master does. But I have called you friends, because all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you may love one another." Our Lord has given us a new commandment, the mandatum of love. And he backs up this new commandment, not just with words, but with actions. It is during this Last Supper that he washes the feet of his apostles. He shows them how much he loves them. It is one of the most striking ceremonies of the Maundy Thursday Mass, how the priest divests himself of his vestments, he girds himself with a towel, with an apron, the amice, and he goes and he washes the feet of 12 men who represent the apostles. It is a magnificent showing of the love of Christ through his minister, the priest for his love for the souls entrusted to his care. And as we wash the feet of these 12 men, the scola chants, the beautiful chant, the antiphon, the ubi caritas, let me just quote it to you. Where charity and love are, there is God. The love of Christ has gathered us together. Let us rejoice in him and be glad. Let us fear and love the living God, and let us love one another with a sincere heart. Where charity and love are, there is God. When, therefore, we are assembled together, let us take heed that we be not divided in mind. Let malignant quarrels and contentions cease. And let Christ our God dwell in the midst of us. Where charity and love are, there is God. Let us also with the blessed see thy face in glory, O Christ our God, there to possess an immense and happy joy for infinite ages of ages. Amen. What a beautiful sentiment. Wherever we find love, wherever we find sacrifice, wherever we find true charity, that's where we find God. And if we truly love God, then we are going to sacrifice ourselves. We are going to die to selves. We are going to come to the redemption of the new Adam. The Last Supper, of course, is the true beginning of the passion of Christ. The new Adam making up for the old Adam's sin. And thus it reminds us of two very important points. Sin is only answered by sacrifice. The only way that we are going to overcome our sins is by sacrificing for the love of Christ. And then secondly, sin is only overcome by death to self. We will only find life if we know how to die. To die to our own selfish desires, to die to our own selfish whims, 
to truly live for Christ. And so, my dear faithful, as we begin this parish mission, let us begin this parish mission, these days of recollection, with a true desire for the new Adam, to truly center our lives on Christ, to make Christ the center, the focal point of all that we do. Let us sorrow for our sins. Let us see the evil of sin, and let us repent of our sins. Let us trust in Christ, trusting in his mercy, trusting in his forgiveness for our sins. And let us enter into a true spirit of sacrifice, a true desire to die to self. Let us enter into the spirit of St. Paul, so that with St. Paul we may be able to say, not just during these days of recollection, but for the rest of our life, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So we will immediately follow with Compline, and then after Compline, we will hear confessions. Both myself and Father Dennis will be hearing confessions. I will be on the epistle side. Father Dennis will be on the gospel side. So we will have Compline now, and then confessions following. <laughs>